There's a quote from author and journalist Hunter S. Thompson that says, Luck is a very thin wire between survival and disaster, and not many people can keep their balance on it. That is true of every Irish criminal on this countdown today. All of their luck ran out eventually, some faster than others. And for the violent Irish mobster at number one, he had no one to blame but himself. Hey, all you weirdos. Welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 unluckiest Irish criminals. So I immediately think of Whitey when I think of Irish criminals because I am from Boston and I think that's just like in our DNA. Like Irish criminal, Whitey, what? Of course. Automatic. It's like, bing, just pops up in your brain. He (laughs) was the first person I thought about when I found out we were covering this topic. And to be honest, I don't think I recognized any of the other names on my side of the list. Oh, that's kind of funny. I recognized a few. But even I was surprised and very horrified by number one. I did not know who that person was. And I was like, oh. And you said they were violent. Oh, horrifying. Okay. I'm, yeah. Dare I say, uh, excited? Scared that is a little. Well, especially because I thought my number two would be number one. So I feel like your number one has to be pretty bad. I bet I know who your number two is now. That's like a running theme lately. (laughs) But that's how this whole thing works. Elena has five Irish criminals, and so do I. But neither of us knows who is on the other one's list. Let's start the countdown. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. 10. I'll start us off with number 10, Catherine Nevin. Catherine made a horrible discovery on March 19, 1996, when she found her husband murdered in the pub they owned in British Bay County, Wicklow in Ireland. But her luck quickly ran out when her story and the evidence just didn't add up. Uh-oh, Catherine. Catherine's husband, Tom, was reported to have been counting up the St. Patrick's Day earnings when he was killed by a single close-range shotgun blast. When police got there, Catherine was visibly shaking and in denial of what was happening. She gave a statement saying she'd been tied up by criminals who also threatened to kill her. She said they tore apart their living area looking for jewelry and then took off in what she said sounded like two vehicles. After they left, she freed herself and hit the alarm. It sounds terrifying and dramatic. Also, it's all fake. Of course. (laughs) It felt fake, too. When she was like, I untied myself and they just, you know, let me go. Too many details. Too Too many details. Too many details. Too, like, I'm the hero who untied myself and got the alarm going. No. Yeah, I don't know. No, no, no. Well, police noted that Catherine's bedroom was trashed, but things looked to be placed too neatly around to give the appearance of a ransack. 
that will always get you yeah, every single time. Will. Jewelry was scattered around the room, but no jewelry was missing. So they just came in and literally tossed all her jewelry in the air. They were like, woo! Yeah, okay. Yay. There were also no signs of forced entry, and police thought it was weird that the curtains in the dining room were closed. I don't know why that's super weird, but... Yeah, I don't know about that one. (laughs) Maybe they just don't need the sun that day. I I mean, maybe the detectives know something I don't, which I'm willing to bet they do because they're detectives. Accurate. I don't see anything weird with that. (laughs) Either way, things didn't add up with Catherine's story to what the crime scene was showing. In April 1997, Catherine was arrested and charged with murder and solicitation to murder. Catherine's trial was described as a public spectacle. People were fascinated by her, especially by the way that she dressed for court and her behavior. Catherine became a lead character in the tabloids, and it seems like she played right into that. Gross. Of course. There was a lot of talk about her marriage falling apart and Catherine wanting to buy her husband out of his half of the pub business. Catherine dragged her husband's character in court, which the judge did not enjoy. <laughs> no, probably not a great idea. Probably not his family if they were the sitting there The murder victim? No, probably not. No. After 42 days of trial evidence, 29 and a half hours of deliberations, she was found guilty. She lost an appeal in 2003 and in 2010 and was released from prison in September of 2017, but died in February of 2018. Wow, what a ride truly from start to finish. Nine. Number nine on our countdown is gang leader Jerry Hutch. Jerry's gang was in a longtime feud with the Kinahan cartel that began in 2015 and resulted in at least 16 deaths. But the event that really grabbed headlines and brought official charges against Jerry Hutch happened in February 2016 at the Regency Hotel in North Dublin during a boxing weigh-in. Random. The boxing weigh-in was being produced by Macklin's Jim Marbella, which was a company co-founded by Daniel Kinahan. Kinahan being the alleged leader of the Kinahan cartel and the suspected target of this attack. The Kinahan cartel, by the way, allegedly a $1 billion narcotics smuggling ring at the time. Uh, bye. I'm out. Nope. <laughs> See you never. I am literally, I'm jumping in an Uber right now to take Ash's phrase. <laughs> T-T-Y-N. Talk yeah. to you never. Goodbye. Now, it's reported that Kinahan's gang attempted to kill Jerry Hutch at one point before this. So Jerry might have been looking for revenge. Perhaps. Fair. Try to kill you. It's a little angering. Yeah. It's believed that desire for revenge led to Jerry's alleged targeting of Daniel Kinahan during this boxing event. On the day of the weigh-in, six armed men barged into the hotel, some of them dressed as police officers. One was dressed as a woman, so they probably walked right by security. Of course. The men opened fire, again reportedly targeting Daniel Kinahan, but Daniel escaped and eventually fled to Dubai. Hmm. Very casual. It's just like, see ya. (laughs) Bye. He hopped in his Uber. One of Daniel Kinahan's men was killed and several others were wounded, but survived. Jerry Hutch took off to Spain, but pursuant to the theme of this episode, his luck ran out. He was extradited back to Ireland to face charges of murder. After the shooting, Macklin's Jim Marbella rebranded to be called MTK Global, which became a huge brand in boxing and did business with the top boxers in the world. The company has claimed Daniel Kinahan is no longer involved, 
But according to the Irish Independent, there have been reports of Kinahan still running the business from Dubai. These type of guys don't just walk away from these kind of things. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like yeah. He's safe. He's in Dubai. He's like, of course, I'm still going to run this. If he's making money from it, or he was, of course, he's not going to run away from it and just be like, well, let's just wash our hands of that. Yeah, like, exactly. No A trial date for Jerry Hutch is set for October 3rd, 2022, which is later in this year. Good luck, Jer. <laughs> Good luck, Jer. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of the top 10 unluckiest Irish criminals is gangster Martin Cahill. Throughout the 1960s, Martin and his brothers were little pests, skipping school, committing burglaries, and taunting the police along the way. Eventually, Martin became a well-known gangster, whose name came up almost every time there was a major crime committed. He had a brand and he stuck to it. Yeah. But he also had some enemies who wanted him gone. That comes along with the territory. It certainly does. By the late 60s, while young Martin and his bros were causing chaos, Ireland's police had their hands full with large criminal groups, including the Provisional IRA, a paramilitary group. So it's not too shocking that the Irish government and police missed the rise of organized crime in the country. But as we know, when there's more than one criminal enterprise in town, they're not usually close friends. Basically not ever, I would say. <laughs> Pretty much never. By 1980, Martin was known as the General and was the prominent gangster in Ireland for 14 years. And he still always made the lives of police hell. He once broke into a police station and stole large amounts of handguns, machine guns, and grenades. Police didn't even notice the missing weapons until that unit was being transferred to a new station in Dublin. What? Who was in charge of inventory? I was just going to say, like, they don't check, have a list. They don't have a guard at that door. They don't even have, like, a note in their phone that says, like, hey, we have 16 machine guns. Make sure they're all still there. Like, I what? I feel like that's a lot. I can't. That's kind of an indictment on that police station a little bit. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. So he also pulled off an art heist, stealing 18 paintings worth more than a million pounds at the time. Oh, Okay. Like, he's buried in what he does. Multifaceted. Now, because of a jewelry heist his gang pulled, again, multifaceted, yeah. the value of the gold and diamonds were worth so much, the company had to shut down and a hundred people lost their jobs. Oh. Rude. Very rude. And just to keep his playdates with police going, after a major job, Martin would spend the night sleeping in front of the Stop police it. station so that he'd have an alibi. Okay, that's hilarious, but he's terrible. He's the worst. But he's like, the worst. That's really funny. That part's funny. <laughs> Lol. Eventually, Martin and his gang were placed under 24-hour surveillance. Finally. But then he did things like drive really far out to nowhere, knowing that a police car had to tail him. The police car would run out of gas, but Martin would have extra in his car. He'd refill his own tank and leave the police behind. Wow. Again, a little funny. <laughs> the level of petty is really unmatched here. It really is. But as I mentioned, his run lasted 14 years, and it circles back to too many criminal minds in one area. Martin was trying to unload those stolen paintings and did business with a group the IRA did not like. The IRA already didn't like Martin, so this was the icing on their hate cake. Uh-oh. On August 18th, 1994, Martin was leaving his house in broad daylight, and a gunman shot and killed him. Eek. The provisional IRA publicly took credit. 
they usually end this way. The way that they just like publicly took credit, like, yeah, yeah. that was us. Woof. So scary. Seven. At number seven this week is aspiring assassin Violet Gibson. On April 7, 1926, luck and aim were not on Violet's side when she tried to assassinate Italian dictator Benito Mussolini in Rome. Growing up, Violet was a debutante in the court of Queen Victoria. Oh, okay. Very casual. Her father was Lord Chancellor of Ireland, Ireland's highest legal office at the time. So, like, you know, <laughs> she had some stuff. She's kind of a big deal. She was a little bit of a big deal. She wasn't just like some random person who decided to be like, maybe I will try brutal violence to get famous. Like she already she already kind of was. Yeah. Mussolini was the leader of the National Fascist Party and became prime minister of Italy in 1922. He dismantled democratic institutions and was a dictator by 1925. He would later copy some of Hitler's policies in the 30s and 40s just to give you a little bit of a taste of how awful he was. Violet Gibson was not having it. Good. A little over three years into Mussolini being the country's leader, he was making a speech in Rome. In the crowd, Violet was ready for her attack. She pointed her gun and fired one shot, but then the gun jammed, giving the crowd enough time to subdue her and police to arrest her. She was sent to an Italian prison for a hot minute, deported to England, and then sent to St. Andrew's Hospital, a mental asylum, until her death in 1956. Just as an FYI, Mussolini was executed in 1945, so... I feel like they, like, could have let her out at that point, because she was never a danger to anybody else, it sounds like. Yeah, it just, you know, it all worked itself out in the end. Yeah. Long after her death, the Dublin City Council passed a motion that argued for Violet to be given her rightful place in the history of Irish women, with a plaque dedicated to her in the city. Many pointed out the convenience of labeling Violet insane instead of political, a documentary filmmaker working on telling her story said, quote, If this had been done by a man, there would probably be a statue or something put up. Because she was a woman, she was locked away. And I agree. How telling. Six. Landing at number six is... Linda and Charlotte Mulhall, a.k.a. the Scissor Sisters. Charlotte claims she hates being called the Scissor Sisters, but it's a nickname that stems from the bloody murder the two of them committed in 2005, a crime that not only made them famous, but sparked the debate of whether you have sympathy for them or disgust. Huh. It's a great band. I will say that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it began when Linda and Charlotte's mom started dating a man who was allegedly physically abusive. One day in 2005, Linda and Charlotte joined their mom and her partner out for some drinks. Let's just say that there was a lot of vodka and some ecstasy consumed that day. Just a typical family happy hour. I was going to say, I see nothing different so yeah. far about everybody's family experience. Yeah, here. we have plans with like our family next yeah, week for some ecstasy. You know, that's and how they all go. Ecstasy and BBQ. For sure. Well, they then all headed back to the mom's house where mom's partner began touching Linda inappropriately and saying sexual things to her. The mom started yelling and apparently said, please just kill him for me. So Linda and Charlotte did. Okay. Charlotte started slashing him with a knife and Linda hit him on the head with a hammer repeatedly. 
After he was killed, the sisters took his body to the bathroom and began to dismember him. Hence the nickname. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. They slowly took several trips to the Royal Canal to dump plastic bags filled with the pieces of his body. The man's head was never found after they buried it somewhere. Charlotte got a life sentence. Linda got 15 years. Their mom fled the country, but came back to a five-year sentence. Okay, mom. I know, it's like, you're the one that started this whole thing. Supposedly. Supposedly, at least. Whoa. That's a tragic one for everybody involved, it seems. That last one was horrible from start to finish in every way in every direction. Yeah. And that was number, what, six? That was number six, yeah. Yeah. What's happening? I'm a little nervous. Unluck. But when we get to, you know what, number one is really going to take the cake. Number two is going to be a close second, I feel. It's going to take the Irish soda bread is what it's going to do. I love Irish soda bread. Who doesn't, you know? The I-5 Strangler, the Southside Dentist, the Berlin Butcher. Meet the many faces of evil in the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers takes an in-depth look at the horrors beyond the headlines. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that left an indelible stain on history. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of the unluckiest Irish criminals. Starting off the second half of our list is Freddie Thompson. Freddie was a chauffeur and bodyguard for the Kinahan gang that we talked about at number nine. Unfortunately for Freddie, you don't have to pull the trigger to get convicted of murder. And he was sent to prison over the second killing on this list involving the Hutch Kinahan gang feud. In the afternoon on July 1st, 2016, security cameras show Freddie driving a Ford Fiesta down Main Street in central Dublin, four minutes before a planned murder took place. A literal mob hit in the making. He's on just camera. cruising a Ford Fiesta. In a Ford Fiesta. His Fiesta was considered by the court to be a spotter car, checking out the location where the intended victim was working. Oh, that's so creepy. Yeah. In a Ford Fiesta. I just can't get over that. It makes it creepier somehow. It does. Prosecutors believe the CCTV cameras also show Freddie escorting other vehicles into the area. Those would become the getaway cars. This is clearly very well organized. Yeah, it really is. And all caught on camera. <laughs> so not super organized. Yeah, they forgot that yeah, part. There was the one whole little thing. detail that they forgot. It's always funny when, well, not funny, but it's always just like, do you just forget that CCTV is a thing that, literally everywhere? That cameras are literally all over the place. Don't you always feel like somebody's watching you? And there's a song about it and everything. Members of the Kinahan gang then entered a store on Main Street and killed their intended victim, shooting him six times as he took his lunch break. Oh, that's horrible. The weapon was left at the scene with the serial number scratched off. Very mob. 
The prosecution said all along that Freddie did not do the actual shooting, but his DNA and fingerprints were found in two of the alleged spotter cars, including that Ford Fiesta he was driving that day. Come on, Freddie. Freddie was also seen on those CCTV cameras breaking up a mobile phone and handing the parts to an unknown woman. So, like, what is going on? Just another Tuesday. Highly suspicious. Just TO'd at my cell phone. Take it away from me. Just get it out of here. I just broke it into pieces. You take it, lady. All of that suspicious behavior and link to the cars pointed to the fact Freddy must be complicit in the murder, which, like... I would say so. Kind of looks like it, Fred. Yeah. Freddie Thompson was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. He joined several other Kenahan gang members in the same prison, which must be a time. <laughs> you would also think that like maybe they would spread them out maybe to break different them prisons. Up a few. Yeah, I don't think it's really good to have them all locked up together. Probably not. Four. Landing at number four this week is Kate Webster. Kate was an Irish woman who grew up with a rightfully earned bad reputation. But she really made a name for herself in 1879 when she committed one of the most gruesome and notorious murders in England. As a young kid in Ireland, after committing theft for a few years, Kate was imprisoned at 15 years old for larceny. When she got out of jail, she decided to move to Liverpool in 1867. But to save up the money she needed to move, she committed even more theft. Not only did she change her location, she changed her last name to Webster. Her story was that she married a sea captain with the last name and they had four children, but the husband and the kids just all died. They just all up and died. She wasn't in Liverpool long before she was back in jail for larceny again. In 1868, she started serving four years. When Kate got out of prison this time in January of 1872, she headed to London to work as a maid. Of course, she had to keep that bad girl image. So in London, she would rent rooms and boarding houses, sell everything in the room, and then bounce. That is very creative. Crafty, if you will. <laughs> like, terrible, but creative. Now I have shocking news for you. Ooh. In May of 1875, she was convicted of 36 charges of larceny and went back to prison for 18 months. Wait, she was convicted of larceny? Crazy. You could knock me over with a feather right now. That's shocking. Unreal. Wow. But wait. She got out and went right back for a year in February 1877. Same crime. Why are you not keeping yeah, her in like, there? Come on. Like, she is proving what she's going to do when she you needs, let her out. She needs a little bit longer, guys. Just a little longer. Now, January 29th, 1879, Kate got a job working in the home of twice widowed Julia Martha Thomas in Richmond. Right away, Julia hates Kate's job performance. Kate's last day of work will be March 2nd. That day, Kate says she argued with Julia before shoving her down the stairs and choking her. Some reports said she attacked Julia with an axe. Oh. But either way, Kate then admitted that she dismembered Julia's body using a razor, a meat saw, and a carving knife. Oh. It gets worse. She then boiled the body parts so that they couldn't ID Julia. You know, I remember this one now. Do you? It was that boiling part that just whoop. Ding, 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 ding. Now. I remember. Yeah, this is rough. Then she tossed the body parts into the Thames, except yep. for the body parts that she allegedly fed to some young boys. She really went from larceny to just like full-blown 
forced crazy, insane forced cannibal murder. Yeah. And it kept going because Kate then pretended to be Julia for two weeks, living in the house and wearing her clothes. On March 18th, a suspicious delivery man called the police. Kate took off back to Ireland, but was arrested on March 29th, 1879. Obviously, the case was a big spectacle. Kate pleaded not guilty, but was found guilty after six days of trial and just one hour of deliberation. Kate Webster was hanged a few weeks later. What an escalation. Like, larceny, 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 murder. Murder, dismemberment, and forced cannibalism. Insane. Wow, okay. Just like, woof. Really took a leap there. Three. Number three on our countdown of the unluckiest Irish criminals is mobster Dean O'Banion. As a mobster in the 20s, it seems like you created your own luck by following orders or taking risks. Dean did a lot of the latter. He reaped a lot of rewards by taking risks, but not everyone was happy with him. You create your own luck. You do. Like Cal Hockley said in Titanic. <laughs> yeah, that's somebody we should quote. <laughs> there you go. He's the worst. He is. Uh, like a lot of mobsters, O'Banion got his start young, but he didn't see much jail time in his lifetime, except for the early 1900s. By the early 20s, O'Banion was running the North Side Gang and started a bootlegging operation, like a lot of mobsters did at that time. A business that always caused friction and violence between those gangs. No, we want you to drink over here. No, over here. No, come here. <laughs> O'Banion pulled off the first liquor hijacking in Chicago on December 19, 1921. When he stopped a whiskey delivery, kicked the driver out of the truck, and sold the whiskey within 20 minutes. So efficient. He's just like, bing, bang, boom, done. And done. O'Banion's enemy at the time, Johnny Torrio, was setting up the new Chicago crime syndicate, which would be a partnership between all the main gang leaders in Chicago. O'Banion was asked to join. By joining, leaders agreed to respect each other's territories and properties. Like Twilight. You know? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Really nailing these references. (laughs) And there was a truce called between the North and South Side gangs for a while, which that's like a big deal. I love it. But then O'Banion acted a fool. Of course he did. Hearing you say that was fun. (laughs) He screwed Johnny Torrio and other mobsters out of money and business with some shady moves. I feel as though I expected that from O'Banion. I definitely expected that out of O'Banion, but I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, it's not cool. You don't screw around with other mobsters, especially after you all just agreed not to screw around with each other. That's like rule number one. Rule number one, stop screwing around. He tried to frame Johnny Torrio and Al Capone for murder. So he's just like going for the big guns. Don't mess with Al Capone, man. And he even set up Johnny Torrio one night, getting him arrested. So woof. Needless to say, O'Banion pushed his luck way too far. On the morning of November 10th, 1924, O'Banion was shot when two gangsters fired two bullets into his chest, two in his cheeks, and two in his throat. Dino Banyan died instantly. I in bet. case you were wondering. Two in the chest, two in the cheeks, and Eek. two in the throat. Eek. Woof. Feels like that was a, like, very specific spots, I would say. Yeah. Three. 
That last one made my cheeks hurt. Yeah, O'Banion really just, he was just running. He was just running for that goalpost. He was doing something. He wasn't going to slow down. You're just like, stop. Can't slow him down. Have some water. You're dehydrated. But he was like, no. Cool it, it, sir. Yeah, this is bad. What it looks like is everybody so far has literally pushed their luck too far. Yeah, (laughs) all of them. Like they reach a point where you're like, how have you not been caught yet or put behind bars forever? And then like, hmm. I'm just gonna do one more. Yeah. One more really bad thing. Just one. One more. Maybe Cal is right. Maybe you do make your own luck. I mean, I think Cal Hockley is right in this instance. Yeah, this seemed to be like a scientific like experiment here, and it, that's our hypothesis, I guess. Let's listen to Billy Zane, I say. Yeah. Two. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of the unluckiest Irish criminals. At number two is our hometown Irish mob boss, Whitey Bulger. There he is. Bulger was a violent mob boss here in Boston for two decades, the 70s to the 90s. But he had a little secret he wasn't sharing with his gang or other mobsters. And the truth is what allegedly led to his death. As a Southie from South Boston, Bulger got his gang legs early in life. He was arrested for the first time at 14 years old. Classic mobster origin story. It's not shocking at all. No. In 1979, leaders of the Winter Hill gang got put away, so Bulger took over. As a mob boss, he was well known to resort to violence and murder pretty quickly to get his way. But what wasn't well known at the time... Bulger was also an FBI informant and had been since around 1974. That is a dangerous game of luck to play. Yeah, it was. But it shows you how confident he was that he could just pull the wool over everyone's eyes. Crazy. Just playing both sides. Now, his FBI contact was actually someone Bulger went to school with, and he would feed the FBI tips that would lead to the arrests of his rivals. Some fun facts about Whitey Bulger. In the 1980s, he supplied weapons to the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, which was fighting the British government in Northern Ireland. Like, remember, the IRA killed Martin Cahill from number eight. (laughs) I was just going to say, ever heard of them? Yeah. Ever heard of the IRA? (laughs) Second fun fact, in 1991, a winning lotto ticket was purchased from a store owned by one of Bulger's associates, and he was quote-unquote graciously cut into a share of the $14 million winnings. Wow, that was so nice for him. How gracious of that person. And I bet they did it totally... Their own volition. On their own, yeah. The goodness of their heart. Yeah, just such a giver. You know what? It's your store. Seems like you could use some of this. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it went down like that. (laughs) Yeah. In December of 1994, Whitey Bulger just up and disappeared. His FBI contact, a childhood friend tipped him off that he was about to be indicted. And what's funny about this is that, like, from 1994 until he was actually found again, it was one of those things around here, especially, like, in Massachusetts, anywhere near Boston, to be like, oh, I saw Whitey today. Like, everybody just would be like, oh, is that Whitey? Any older guy, they were like, oh, that's that's Whitey. Whitey. (laughs) He was on the run for 16 years until 2011 when he was finally caught living in Santa Monica, California. In 2013, he was convicted of participating in 11 murders, extortion, money laundering, and drug dealing. He got two consecutive life sentences. He was brutal, too. 
with oh, his yeah. murders. Oh, like, yeah. Brutal. Like, removed people's teeth. Killed so women. they couldn't be like, identified. Bad, bad guy. Real bad guy. But on October 30th, 2018, the 89-year-old was killed in prison with a quote-unquote lock-in-the-sock attack allegedly carried out by a mafia hitman who did not like rats. A lock-in-the-sock. I'm leaving. Exactly what you think it is. Oh, it hurts. It gives me a headache. Eek. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 unluckiest Irish criminals, Eamon Dunn. Eamon was called the Don, and he was a ruthless gang leader who ran Dublin's drug trade in the early 2000s. It's thought he ordered at least 17 hits on people who he deemed a threat, but there were also people who deemed him a threat and did something about it. Oh. Don't be shocked to learn, Eamon Dunn started somewhat young and rose in the ranks of that sweet, sweet mob life pretty quickly. He lands at number one for one big reason. His mob life was very short-lived. Between 2002 and 2005, the Don earned his keep with a lot of armed robberies. Also during that time frame, he was, this is insane, he was once stopped by police while in a car with a man who was bound and gagged. And how did he explain that? The victim straight up never filed a complaint, so no charges were ever brought against Eamon. What? That should tell you how intimidating the Don was. That told me. December 2006, the Don had worked his way up and became the gang leader after crime boss Martin Marlowe Highland was shot and killed. It's believed that the Don ordered Marlowe's murder, so he sort of created that opportunity for himself. Again, listening to Cal Hockley, a man makes his own luck. It's true. I feel like that's the running theme. Titanic, it's the running theme here. But as we mentioned, his reign as boss was short-lived, though extremely brutal. He was linked to 17 murders over the next three years while in charge. 17 murders in three years? That's a lot. Mm-hmm. But it's lonely at the top, you know? And yeah, you know, I don't. As, as a mob boss, I don't know, know about that. You get it, right? And some of the Don's own associates grew really tired of all his BS. They thought there was too much violence and paranoia coming from his leadership. So the group got together and they planned to knock him off. April 2010, Eamon the Don Dunn was at a birthday party for a friend at a local pub. Which, like, why does the mob just love a restaurant or like a bar location for a hit? Because Is you can the- kill somebody and then have wings. There you go. I feel like it's almost like a show of like, we don't care. Yeah, we'll, like we can do we're this in the anywhere. middle of a restaurant. Like everybody sees it, so they know to like fall in line, yeah, kind of thing. Pretty much. It's also just I think it's like a vulnerable state. You're sitting there eating lunch or something. Yeah, it's like Goodfellas. Feels worse. It does. Well, four men pulled up to the pub where Eamon was celebrating. Three of the men positioned themselves to keep watch and provide cover if needed. The fourth walked up to the Don and shot him eight times. Whoa. Police sources said the shooter knew exactly where Eamon was sitting in the pub, suggesting someone that was already in the pub with him was sending info to the shooters. Yup, definitely. Interesting. Probably like somebody like on the bottom. Yeah, right. And they were trying to work their way up. It's reported the gunman didn't even need to get a look at his face to make sure it was him before shooting. 
seems like you might want to do something <laughs> like that. Feels like it would be important. Do the work. You know. The Don's 17-year-old daughter was right there with him, and oh. she saw it all happen, which is so sad. I feel like they should have collateral damage there. Oh, man. Yeah, it's really sad. A second gunman fired a warning shot into the air, maybe to give cover for them all to leave, and they sped off. That's horrific. The car the gunmen were driving was found near the crime scene, but it had not been destroyed, like burned to destroy any evidence kind of thing. Yeah. No one was convicted of his murder. The mob. When it ends like that, it's like, ooh, spooky. I gotta say, I still think Whitey's number one. Me too. I, <laughs> I gotta say it. I was shocked when Whitey wasn't. I'm shocked because Eamon's wild for sure. He's definitely a number two. But Whitey is the mobster. Whitey's stuff is gnarly. And how unlucky. How unlucky. Like, you make it all the way to 89 and that's what takes you out that's and you're thing. Whitey Bulger. See, that's the thing with Whitey is he had so much luck. Mm-hmm. And for it to run out the way it did is like, whoa. Yeah. That's number one. I disagree, Parkhouse Research say, Gods. Maybe it's because we're from Boston. I think it might be, Ken. But I also have to say, a few of these I had no idea who they even were. So this was like fascinating to read about. Mm, same here. And horrifying. Uh, so I can't say anybody that was left off this list. I can't really. think of anybody. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other ParCast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at ParCast on Facebook and Instagram and at ParCast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which we hope you do, you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at Amorbid Podcast. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo, with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez. Research by Jay Cahio. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. Their names have become larger than life. Their crimes, some of the most heinous in history. Their stories, examined each week on the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, journey past the headlines and into the minds and motives of the murderers who forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.